Please turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. The Gospel of John, chapter 11. My plan is to simply cover the first six verses, so just a brief beginning of this chapter today in the sermon. I'm going to read the passage, the six verses, and then I'm going to read a hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way, which is about God's providence over human suffering, and then I'm going to pray for us. So this is the Word of the Lord, John 11, verses 1 through 6. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, I'm not going to get into a translation debate here, but some translations, I think, don't know what to do with the awkwardness of verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and then verse 6 should start with either the word therefore or the word so in your translation because it's there in the Greek. I believe the word's un, it's there in the Greek, so, therefore. A lot of translations, some translations feel like it's so awkward to say, God loved them, so He stayed where He was. You see how strange that sounds? So, some translations will actually change the word to yet, He loved them, yet, despite the fact that He loved them, He stayed. That's not right. Your translation should say, so or therefore, at the beginning of verse 6, His love was motivating His behavior to stay where He was, which is perplexing. That is confusing. And that's why some translators don't know what to do. So I want to read a a hymn uh, that is on this theme of when God's love is a confusing thing. His providence can seem perplexing to us. Just listen to to this hymn from William Cooper hundreds of years ago. Here's what he wrote, a wonderful, rich hymn. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. You fearful saints, fresh courage Take the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. The final part. Blind unbelief is sure to err 
and scan his works in vain. For God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Let's pray again. Lord, I pray that as we meditate on these six verses in John 11, that you would show us significant truths about how the Christian is to relate to suffering and how the Christian is supposed to relate to you and then how you relate to us, sometimes in a way that is perplexing and even puzzling, as I'm sure it was to Martha and Mary in this story. So, God, teach us what you have for us in this passage, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my message has three points, and I'm just going to tell you I got a lot of help from two different pastors. One is James Boyce, who went to be with the Lord about 22 years ago, and another one is Richard Phillips, who's alive today. But their sermons on this passage together were extraordinarily helpful, and I'm borrowing from them uh, generously at portions in this sermon. It was just really helpful for me. So, the the three points. Number one, introducing Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We know about these individuals. We hear about them, but I want to introduce us to them briefly. Number two, Point number two, taking our troubles to Jesus, which they model for us in this story. And number three, Jesus' puzzling and purposeful response. Jesus' puzzling and purposeful response. So let's just refresh ourselves to who these well-known Bible characters are. Uh, They appear in one way or another, although they're not always named. They appear in all four Gospels. Mary is not named in in Matthew and Mark's account, but she's there. She's the woman uh, anointing Jesus with oil close to his death. That's Mary. Uh, And John tells us her name in John uh, chapter 12. Uh, Mary serves. Every time you see Mary, she's falling at Jesus' feet. In all four Gospels, she's right at Jesus. And, and, and as you see in, in Luke chapter 10, there's that wedding feast. Remember, Martha is troubled with much serving, and where is Mary? She has done, she's found the better portion. She is at the feet of Jesus, listening and learning. And then in John chapter 11, when Jesus arrives after Lazarus has been dead for four days, it says Mary came and fell at his feet. And then in John chapter 12, at the dinner that they have to celebrate the raising of Lazarus, she's pouring ointment on his feet and wiping his feet with her hair. Everywhere you look, Mary is at the feet of Jesus. Martha, if you remember, I'll just read real quick the parallel passage. I mean, it's not a parallel. It's another passage from Luke 10. I just listened to this. You know the story. Now, as they, were on, they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and welcomed Jesus, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha, as you are introduced to her, is a little bit on the self-centered side. She uses the word me or my about three times in the short address to Jesus. What about me? What about how my sister's treating me? Lord, do something for my sake. And she's very self-centered in the way that she's serving. And she was clearly uh, someone gifted with service, but she was doing it in a, in a self-preoccupied way. Well, you know, you see her serving later on in the Bible. In, in the next chapter, if you're in John, John chapter 12, You see here in verse 2 of John 12, Martha served and Lazarus was reclining at table, and there is no mention of Martha complaining this time around. Why? She's still serving. She's still the same Martha, but a major event had taken place between that last story and this story, which is the raising of her brother Lazarus from the dead, and that clearly had a major effect, how could it not, on Martha and on Mary as well. 
and Martha now is serving, but there seems to be no complaint, a cheerfulness, a gladness to her service. She's been transformed by the work of Jesus in her life. And finally, Lazarus. Now, I, I don't know that I thought a whole lot about this, but Lazarus is never quoted in the whole New Testament. You never hear a word out of Lazarus's mouth. And yet, so James Boyce said, I don't want to, you know, he's, he doesn't want to overly speculate. You don't want to psychologize the text and try to read into someone's thinking, but it could be, we don't know for sure, it could be Lazarus was of a quieter nature in general. He just isn't, we don't have any quotes from him. We have quotes from his sisters on repeated occasions, but not from Lazarus. Perhaps he was quieter by disposition. We're not sure about that. But either way, his life radically affect other people, although we don't have a single word he said. Well, how was it that his life radically affected the people around him? Many were won to Christ by Lazarus' silent testimony. What was his testimony? It was the transformation of his life. He was dead, and the Lord had raised him to life, and this actually precipitated the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus because Jesus became so trusted and so popular through the raising of Lazarus just a few weeks before uh, his death on the cross. This actually sped Jesus' hatred by the religious establishment. And so, James Boyce said, listen, some people are more wired to be extroverts. Some are more wild, wired toward introversion. Well, listen, we all have a responsibility to, to speak boldly at times for Christ. I am not denying that. But he, James Boyce said, we should not discount the fact that a transformed life can speak very loudly. And, and, and Lazarus was a man who, although we don't have a word he said, his life was so touched and changed by Jesus that many were won to Christ through what had happened to him. So there they are. Those are the three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now let's, let's move in here more carefully to our passage. Let's look again at the first few verses of John 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. I just pause there. Bethany's just over the hill east of Jerusalem. It's not that far away from Jerusalem, nearby. The village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who had anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, it's, it's fascinating here that John precipitates, or he, he mentions ahead of time, Mary's action anointing Jesus' feet. He doesn't do that for a lot of things in his gospel that he could do that for, but he does that for Mary here. Why? It's very clear to me that John is highlighting almost as much as you can in a short period of time the love that exists between these three siblings and Jesus. Twice it says he was the one Jesus loved. The one whom you love is ill. Later in the chapter, Jesus weeps at the tomb, and they say, look, behold how he loved Lazarus. So John is going out of his way, saying it over and over and over again. Don't be deceived by, by Jesus' actions, which may seem perplexing in this story. He unquestionably loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And John is saying, don't you doubt that. And, and, and here's just an immediate point of application. James Boyce, I believe, is the one who said this. We must learn to interpret circumstances by the love of Christ and not interpret Christ's love by our circumstances. Do you understand that? We must look at our circumstances through the lens of Christ's sure and certain love. We are not to look at His love through ever-changing circumstances because we will misunderstand His love. We will doubt His love. It's like the disciples on the Sea of Galilee during the storm. Do you not care that we're perishing? And I think Jesus would want to just say, you have no idea how much I care. And once the cross is in view, you, you should never doubt again how much I care. Don't look at His love through circumstances. Look at His circumstances through the lens of His love. 
just an obvious opening point to the story. James Boyce says, quote, even those whom Jesus especially loves get sick and eventually pass away. Even those whom He especially loves have to face illness and death. It is a false presentation of Christianity that says those whom God loves do not experience earthly tragedy, earthly pain, or earthly sorrow. That is a prosperity theology that is trying to take heaven and bring it into the future in totality. <laughs> that we're going to have ever, we, we are one day going to be uh, prosperous in, in eternity. We're going to have resurrection bodies that will never get sick, but people who try to bring all that into the present are deceiving many, and that's not what is taught in this text. James Boyce says, quote, death takes the father of a young family. A mother is taken. A spiritual counselor or leader is taken from us just at the moment when we feel that we need his or her presence and advice. One who has been the most useful is laid aside by a lingering illness. In such a moment, some question the presence or the love of God. Others, even those who do not doubt God's love and faithfulness, find their faith is tested. It's put through the testing fire of trials. There is probably not a better example of what we are to do in the entire Bible than the example given us by Martha and Mary at the beginning of this story. So point number two in the message, they take their sufferings to Jesus. Let's read this again, verses, verse 3. So the sisters sent to him, to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. They brought the matter to Jesus. You, you know Psalm 46.1, God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is not a God who is distant when we are going through difficulty. God is a God who loves to be present in the midst of tragedy, adversity, and suffering. He is near to the brokenhearted and with those who are crushed by grief. The Lord loves to draw near. He delights in coming near those who are weak or burdened or who are heavy laden. James Boyce says, Jesus sympathizes deeply with His suffering people. He invites them to pour out their anguish in their hearts before Him. Mary and Martha showed great wisdom in acquainting Jesus with their problem, and so do we when we do likewise. True, Jesus already knows our problem. He knows everything about us. Still, He invites us to come to tell Him and to receive that heart relief which only He is capable of giving. Now, how is it comforting? Let me just say here, I don't know if this is the practice of all of you, most of you, some of you, I don't know. But this is vital, especially going through difficult times. It happens all the time in the psalmist. One of my favorite is Psalm 142. It's a brief psalm. I love this psalm for this matter. But David says, I poured out my complaint before the Lord. I told my trouble before Him. And the Lord hears. Now listen, if you have doubt, you know what? You don't let that you know, be bottled away in your heart and let it fester. If you have difficulty, you don't just kind of hide that in the corner. You unbottle it, and you pour it out before the Lord. I hope this is something that, I mean, we're all a work in progress. I hope this is something that we all are learning to do more of. The psalmist was never ashamed to take his doubt and his fear and his anxiety and not just act like it's not there, like some sort of stoic. No, David, hiding in that cave, which he talked about in Psalm 142, when Saul's trying to kill him, that's when he wrote the psalm. It tells us in the heading he's hiding in the cave when he wrote this, about to be killed. He thinks maybe, although God promised to protect him, and what does he do? He 
God, I'm, I'm alone. My right-hand man has forsaken me. I'm all by myself. God, please help me. Please help me. And then before you know it, by the time he gets to the end of the psalm, he says, the Lord will deal bountifully with me. What's happened to that psalm? His circumstances have changed. Not at all. No change whatsoever to his circumstances between the first verse and the last verse of Psalm 142. What happened? David changed. His circumstances did not change. God did not change. David changed. How did David change? David changed while interacting with and pouring out his grief before his heavenly father. And he poured it out unashamedly, poured it out in full trust and confidence that God would hear him. We don't tell God things because he doesn't know them. Before a word is on my lips, you know it completely, O Lord. Every day was written for me before one of them came to pass. God knows everything about us. He knows far more than we do. He knows every hair on our head numbered. But there is something about speaking to God and pouring out our complaint before the Lord that is simply a way in which God works to sanctify us, to reassure us, and to give us a sense of His nearness and His love. And Mary and Martha, their brother is dying. He's getting worse and worse on his sickbed. They know Jesus is a number of miles away in a, in a distant area. They send a messenger, go tell Jesus that our brother whom you love is ill. And just being able to unburden that before the Lord is its own kind of relief. 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that at the proper time he may exalt you. How do you do that? How do you humble yourself under God's hand and not be arrogant? You don't try to carry your own burdens. An arrogant person tries to carry his or her own burdens in his own strength. But this psalm says, I mean this verse says, humble yourselves. How? Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That is one way in which you can deal with anxiety. It's the only real way to deal with it is to throw them onto the shoulders of Jesus and let him bear the weight of those things. This also reminds us, their, their interaction here, it reminds us that Jesus is directly involved with our situation. He is not a distant God. He is a God who is near us. And look at their appeal. It's a simple sentence. Let me read verse 3 again. The sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Well, some people pointed out, they did not say, Jesus, we who had you over to our home recently for a nice meal have someone who is sick, and you owe us. They didn't say, hey, Lord, he who loves you is ill, although that would have been true. He doesn't say, listen, it's a bartering system, Lord. We've done a lot of things for you. Now you can do something for us. Instead, they cast themselves entirely on God's love. They just say, Lord, we're putting him into your hands, the one whom you love is ill. It reminded me of David's prayer in Psalm 51 after the adultery. Have mercy on me, O God, according to what? My tears of repentance? No. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. We appeal to God based on his gracious character, not based on our works righteousness. And finally, they, they left the matter entirely in Jesus' hands. Now, obviously, don't, can't we tell? The reason they sent the message was not just to inform him. It was because they wanted him to come heal him, obviously. That's why they tell Jesus, hey, our brother is sick. The one whom you love is ill. Clearly, the implied request is, Lord, we want you to come heal him, right? Otherwise, why are they sending this messenger ultimately? Clearly, that's their desire. But do you see how they leave it in his hands for the final result? They don't demand an outcome. Lord, heal him or else. We're not going to trust you anymore. No, they say, Lord, we're putting him in your hands. 
The one whom you love is ill. Please do as you see fit, seems to be what they are saying. James Boyce says this, we cannot miss feeling what then they phrased, why they rephrased the report as they did, Lord, he whom you love is sick. They indicated by the form of it that they were seeking his will rather than their own in the matter. I wonder if you do that in your prayers. It is not so much the words you use, it is the desire of your heart. Certainly you would like the trouble removed, the sick to be healed, but is that our fundamental desire? Or is, that, or is it that God's will would be done regardless of the outcome? It is only when we pray in the latter way that we are enabled to make a request so known under God that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding would keep and guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Point number three for the message, Jesus' puzzling and purposeful response. Jesus' puzzling and purposeful response. Th these verses contain a world of wonderful and perplexing doctrine and theology. L look with me at verses four to six. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. We are so used to the fact that Lazarus is raised that it's very easy to not take seriously those four days that he laid in the tomb. But you understand his death was just like any death of anyone we love for those first four days. <clears throat> Piper says this, for the days leading up to and immediately following Lazarus' death and burial, his family did not and could not have known how God would be glorified in it. We often do not know exactly how God is going to use our trials. We must trust God's character even when we cannot fully explain His actions in this world. We must trust His character when we cannot fully explain His actions. One pastor says, if God wants you to trust Him, He puts you in a place of difficulty. And if God wants you to trust Him greatly, He puts you in a place of impossibility. Let me read an extended quote here from James Boyce. Please listen to this. God does not always act the way we think He should act or when. No doubt when Mary and Martha first acquainted Jesus with the fact of Lazarus' sickness, they expected to see Him recover as soon as the messenger reached Jesus, or else they expected Jesus to come immediately to their aid. But neither happened. Instead of getting better, Lazarus became worse and worse and eventually died. Instead of coming, Jesus waited for two more days and then arrived in Bethany at least four full days after their brother's death. From this we learn that Jesus may be completely, listen, we may learn that Jesus may be completely informed of our trouble, and yet, from our perspective, act as though he were completely indifferent to it. You see, from their perspective, 
they're checking the front door. They're looking out the windows. Jesus is surely going to be here any time today. Surely he'll be here. We don't have much time left. Surely Jesus is coming. I mean, this is, he's the healer. Surely he will come. And we, we got message to him. We know he loves us. We know he loves Lazarus. We just, it's, it's just a matter of minutes. It's a matter of moments before he will be here, and this will all be a bad dream. We're going to wake up, and it will not, this will not be happening anymore. And they check the window day in and day out, and Lazarus actually dies. And Jesus hasn't come. And they lay him in the tomb. And Jesus hasn't come. Day one after his death, day two, day three, Jesus has not arrived. And it looks from their vantage point, does he truly care? If he cared, surely he would be here. He would have done something. He could just speak a word from 100 miles away and he could heal our brother. What is Jesus doing right now? Boyce continues, we learn that prayer for the sick may not always be answered, at least as we wish. No, the comfort in our prayers is not the fact that Jesus always answers them as we wish, for he does not. It is that he who made us and controls all circumstances knows best and is well able to direct even sickness and death to his glory. One pastor said, Mary and Martha no doubt frequently looked out their window or stood in the doorway expecting to see Jesus arrive in their, to their aid. He will come, they would have assured themselves to each other. But all the while, Jesus was waiting for the very thing they most feared to happen. Why the delay for those he loved. So that's the perplexing part of Jesus' response. Now I want to look at his purposeful response. Why, what was Jesus doing at this time? Let me read the verses one more time, verses 4 to 6. But when Jesus heard it that Lazarus was sick, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Here are some things we know for sure. If Christ delays, Boyce says, the delays are the delays of love. They are not the delays of indifference. He does not delay because he does not care. If Christ delays, the delays are of love. They are not the product of his preoccupation or distraction. That is, he does not delay his answer because he was too busy to deal with our problems. No, we must understand that what Jesus does is purposeful. So, do you see how he's defining love in this passage? Look at verse 4. I'm going to read it one more time. When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Lazarus is raising from the dead is meant as a sign for all believers of our future in Christ. Lazarus died. The Lord did not rescue him before death. He lay dead for four days so that it was fully known by all that he was truly dead. This was not, a, this was not merely him dying moments ago and sort of resuscitating. This was, this was a man who was truly dead for days. The, the sisters were worried there would be a bad odor when the tomb was opened uh, after four days. Jesus did this. Why? He did not do this because he was indifferent or because he did not love them. The reason why he waited and allowed Lazarus' death and the grieving to take place and for his late arrival was so that the glory of God would be seen in the raising of Lazarus and that a final sign would be given to all who had eyes to see that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and that he has power over the grave. If he can raise Lazarus after four days in the tomb, he can raise anyone at any time from the dead and he will raise all those who truly know and trust him. In other words, Jesus is saying, I love you. And I love you so much that I'm going to allow something that is incredibly painful to happen to you. 
It grieves Jesus himself when he's at the tomb. You understand, Jesus knows he's going to raise Lazarus in a few moments, and yet he enters into the grief, and he grieves with the sisters and those who were mourning at that tomb. Jesus says, listen, I hate death. You can feel it all in his emotions. He became angry as he approached the tomb, not angry at the sisters, not angry at those who are grieving, not angry at Lazarus. He was angry at sin and its effects. He was angry at sin and death and what it does to people. And Jesus approaches the tomb with great grief and great anger against sin and death. He was not indifferent. He was not callous. He was not unfeeling. He entered into that grief right there and publicly so, so much that the crowd says, look how much he loved him. So why did Jesus allow them to go through that horrible, horrible few weeks of grief? The answer is, He does care about those things, but He cares about something even more than our physical health in the moment. What He cares is ultimately that His glory be known and seen. At the end of this story, His glory is profoundly known, and the fact that He is the resurrection and the life is visible for all who have eyes to see. One pastor says this, if you find it difficult to set aside your own will for the will of God, remember that Jesus is not asking of you anything that he did not accept for himself. See, Jesus himself experienced this in a way that none of us ever will. In the garden, he said, not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus knows what it's like to have the Father say, I know that at least In your humanity, you do not desire, you do not delight in the thought of going through a torturous and horrific death. I know that. But the Father said, I have something more in in mind for you, something deeper in mind for you. Jesus himself experienced this in a way that none of us will. He was maliciously accused, unjustly convicted, and cruelly put to death. Where was his Father in all this? Did not the Heavenly Father love his Son? How could God delay as the crown of thorns was placed on Jesus' head, as the nails were beaten through his hands and feet, and as Jesus suffered such torment on the cross? Even as Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But see, Jesus persevered in faith because he knew God's purpose in the end. Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He persevered in faith, knowing that his was a death that leads to life, not only for him, but for all who trust in him. So he finally prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And because of that life-giving death, the same will be true for us as well. To be a Christian means to die to sin, to worldly pleasures, and even to our own agenda for our lives. But with Jesus who conquered death as our Savior, all of those will lead to life. And then the love of Jesus, our dearest friend, which was once delayed, will be near at hand forever. As we've been thinking about death, you know, I woke up 3.30 in the morning this morning. I could not go back to sleep for a solid hour. I was just asking the Lord to have mercy on Liliana and just thinking about their situation until about 4.30. I'm sure you've had those moments this week too. Here's the incredible truth that the gospel offers us. One of the first phone calls I had with Scott after it became clear it was cancer a few weeks ago, Scott said, I don't know what you do if you don't believe in the hope of resurrection. See, we have hope beyond the grave. We have hope that death is not the end. We have hope that one day all sorrow and sighing will flee away, that God will remove all tears from all faces. We have hope that we will drink the water of life 
flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. We know that one day we will not have any fear of sickness or death, no fear of departure from loved ones. We know that, as 1 Thessalonians said, the dead in Christ will rise first. We who are still alive will be caught up together with them, with the Lord to meet them in the clouds, and so we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage one another with these words. See, right now you look at the immediate circumstances and they look extremely bleak and negative. But we've got to pick our eyes off of those. We grieve for those. We, we take those seriously, but we look beyond them. And we look to the hope of resurrection life. That one day in the resurrection we will be together, never to depart again because of the work of Christ. And that's only true because He took our sins in His body and carried our illnesses, as Isaiah said. So we come to the Lord's table now. I'm going to read a brief passage from Matthew chapter 26. You can turn there if you'd like, Matthew chapter 26. Starting in verse 26. This is at the Last Supper. Matthew 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood for the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again of this, I will not drink again the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. If you are not a believer today, we would ask that you refrain from coming forward to partake of these elements. These elements are symbols of what is true of us in Christ. If you are a believer and you're not walking in unrepentant sin at this time, we would ask that after I'm finished praying that you would come forward and take of these elements, knowing that they represent Christ's body which has been given for us and His blood which has been shed for us so that we do have eternal hope in Christ that we will one day again eat this meal with Christ in the Father's kingdom a kingdom that will never end. So I'd like you to go ahead and take a moment to bow your heads together. I'm going to pray for us, and then you can come forward after I've finished praying. Heavenly Father, we, we do trust you that behind a frowning, frowning providence you hide a smiling face that the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. God, we trust you that even when we cannot fully understand all that you are doing, that you have good purposes that are ultimately for our good and for your glory. God, I pray as we come forward that we would be humbled by our sin and that we would also be excited by the hope that we have in Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you conquered death and have taken the sting so that death now ushers us in to glory. I pray that you'd be with us now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.